enjoying second service so far. Come on. Get to sleep in a little later. Not too bad. Yeah, yeah. Who cares about the Super Bowl? Who cares? <laughs> Stinking Patriots. Dang it. If you know me, I'm not a Patriots fan. And if you are, you have been excommunicated officially. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. We love everybody um, except Tom Brady, but... Uh, <laughs> I hardly even want to watch this year. So anyway, we're going to talk about Psalm 73. We're going to get in the Bible today. We are starting a new series that we started last week called Soundtrack. And the idea of Soundtrack is if you've ever, ever been to a movie, a horror movie, action movie, whatever, what really helps enhance the movie, even if you don't even notice it, is the music behind it. You know what I'm talking about? So that, that just feeling and the, uh, that builds up as you're watching some epic tale or something happening. And that soundtrack brings so much really emotion and it stirs something in you. You know, you're watching a movie and your wife's crying and you're like, I ain't crying, girl, it's sweat. Like, but something, some emotions are getting stirred in you. And to me, we're going through some Psalms, some of the uh, chapters of Psalms and specifically Psalm 73 today and dealing with some of those emotions because we believe the Bible wants to help you in your emotions. A lot of times, if you've grown up, maybe in church or different things, uh, the church or religion will say, hey, stuff your emotions. Don't, they're bad. They're evil. Don't, you don't want to think, feel, right? Don't, don't, you don't really want that because all those feelings, man, they're just going to lead to bad things. And so stuff them down, suppress them. And yet on the other end, on the other pendulum swing, you have the culture, right, that says fully vent your emotions. Like that, those emotions are who you are, um, that, that defines you, all those kind of things. And yet the Bible doesn't say stuff them. It doesn't say fully vent them. And get yourself in trouble or be led by your emotions. That's really dangerous. How many of you guys know the emotions are really bad drivers? Really bad drivers. Not good at the driver's seat. You're just going to be like this all the time if you're led by your emotions. But they're not bad passengers. And the Bible says don't stuff them. Don't fully vent them. But pray them. Learn how to deal with them because God can construct, and he's given you those emotions for a reason. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at today in Psalm 73, the emotion or feeling of doubt. Anybody ever doubted? Yeah, me too. And that's okay. We're in a church where we're all about authenticity, and we can be real. You don't just say, man, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. Yeah, me too. Go and move on. But, you know, sometimes we doubt, and we have struggles, and we go, is God good? And I don't know, and we've got to wrestle with these things. And what I love about the Scripture is the Scripture just doesn't say, hey, believe me, do it. But it also has people that wrestle with doubt, and it helps you wrestle through it, because that's what we want to do is go through our doubts. Use our doubts, not as bad things, but as platforms to get us to faith. That's the goal, and that's why doubts come. So I'm going to read through all of Psalm 73, and then we're going to come back and just go through verse by verse and talk about what the psalmist here is saying. The psalmist is Asaph is his name. It says Psalm 73. Check this out, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut Struts through the earth. Therefore, his people 
turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, let us not only listen, but be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's a lot of scripture and a lot we want to get through because we want to talk about what is this author trying to say. If you just read through the psalm really quickly, how many of you guys have read this psalm before? Maybe it's comforted you, helped you. It's a great psalm. Something happens when you study it and you go, oh my gosh, there is gold in them there hills. So there's a lot of things in there to mine out and get out of. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to parse this and help you understand this, at least an easy way for me. Because we're talking about praying through and dealing with our doubt. So I'm going to give you three steps to dealing with doubt. And I'm giving you one of those preacher things, right? Just to kind of help you understand what we're trying to say to help you. This is dig. When you doubt, I want you to dig. And here's number one. I want you to, we're going to look at this in the scripture. I want you to deconstruct your doubt. Think about it and deconstruct why do I have doubt. It's good to do. And you're going to see how the author here does this. We're going to immerse ourselves in church community and move toward those questions. Okay. And then lastly, we're going to grow in our faith. And that needs to be our attitude. This is how we dig our way out of doubt. If you go to a small group this week, um, some of them uh, will be catching up next week, a Super Bowl Sunday tonight. But our small groups are going to be digging into these things as well to help us go through this. So let's go back to the beginning. Look at this, verse 1. He says this, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Let me test you and say this, God is good. And all the time. You're so Christian, right? You're so churchified. You got this down. How many guys grew up saying that in church? God is good. All the time, all the time, God is good. And that's good, and that's where we start because the Bible actually says in Psalm 89, 14, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. In other words, the very foundation of knowing God is saying he is good. Because why would you want to go to a bad God 
somebody out for your evil, not for your good. But to be able to say God is good is the foundation. And so what wants to get corrupted in our life is the goodness of God. And the questions that go, is God good? Hmm, maybe not. And this is what I love about this psalmist because in his doubt, I'm so thankful for his experience because in his doubt, and I love that the Bible does this, it helps us in our doubt. In him thinking through and talking about a 3,000-year-old poem, the Bible is so relevant to you today and me today because the very things he's going to go through are the things you and me struggle to go, is God good? And I love how he starts because he says, God is good. Let the church say God is good. But then he turns the corner really, really quickly. But as for me, maybe you felt like this before. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. I want to hone in on the first part because he says, God is good, but I don't really feel like he's good right now. And I'm questioning his goodness for me. Why? And he says this. He says, I almost stumbled. I love the term, I almost slipped. Look at this picture here. And this is the picture I want you to get. It's good to get kind of a, a picture or idea of what the scripture's trying to say, especially with Psalms. There's so much a metaphor. Because in our daily walk with God or trying to understand God or just living life, you're not just taking a walk on a sidewalk and tripping every once in a while. I think the picture he's trying to get, especially when you have challenges and opposition that arises, is actually more like climbing a mountain. Anybody done rock climbing or rock wall, anything like that? In rock climbing, you have to plan out your strategy. This is, I'm going to put my hand here. I'm going to put my foot here. I need to get a good foothold. I need to not slip. And I'm going to grab. And you kind of plan out, now I'm going to grab here. I'm going to grab here. Because you're trying to challenge yourself and you're trying to go somewhere. And what the psalmist is trying to say, he's not saying I was just taking a brisk walk. But I'm climbing and I almost slipped to my death. And I was in the middle because I started to doubt. Now, what happens? We have plans and we have life and we say, I'm going to grab this. Okay, it's secure. And then you go to, go to the next thing in life or God's challenging you with something or you're trying to create a business or a family or a love relationship and you reach out to grab that thing and the rock comes off and you're clinging, holding on, going, wait, 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 I thought that was secure. I thought life was going to be easy and work out. And you're left doubting and going, oh, gosh, what do I do? What do I do? And we've all been there. I'll tell you how it started for me. Um, when I first came to Christ, I was about 17 years old. And I grew up in church, kind of the CEO Christians, Christian Easter only. Our family would go every once in a while. But we weren't really devout. We didn't really, I mean, like, like Jesus, you gave your life for me. I'll give my life for you. It wasn't any of that. It was just kind of a religious experience. A lot of it was suppressing emotions, kind of going through the motions. At 17 years old, God tackled my heart, changed my life. I started witnessing to my friends. I was working at Blockbuster Video, seeing employees get saved. We couldn't save Blockbuster, though. Can we say a prayer for Blockbuster right now? And we're all thankful because our late fees are covered because they're bankrupt officially now. Okay, so, but that's what I was doing. That's where I was working and doing movies and all that kind of stuff. But God was doing something in my life. I had experience with God. And let me say this. If you've never had a heart change experience with God in his presence where he comes and changes your life, you probably don't know him. 
You probably don't really have a relationship with him. You might not really be a believer. Because it's not just the formalities and doing the things. It's a life that has changed, a transformation. And I was, I was, I mean, something happened in my life. I was absolutely in love with God. Like, it was not me. It was outside of me. God coming and taking control of my life and me saying, yes, I'll give you my life. And I, I remember I'm 17 years old, and it's before classes start in high school. And I, I'm in the Bible, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm really getting into it. And I'm kind of lost, and just God's just ministering, doing stuff in me. And I'm doing this not because I was a pastor. I was 17. I was doing it because I'm a Christian, and that's what Christians do. Ouch. And so I'm reading the Bible and I'm enthralled in it. Like God's just doing something in me at 17 years old. And I lose track of time and I look up, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late for class. So I get in my 1987 Ford Ranger XLT red truck. Yeah, I'm old. Drive to school. And on my way to school, I'm going to park in my parking spot and somebody hits me from behind. And it kind of tilts me over. And I get out of the car, and I'm like, what's going on? And it was a lady on her way to drop her kids off as well, and she hit me. And I had eyewitnesses that said, this person wasn't paying attention. They hit you. She's the one who hit me from behind. I go file a police report. My insurance won't do anything. Nothing comes out of it. I'm frustrated. I end up, my parents are so cheap, they never fix my car, and I worked at Blockbuster. What am I supposed to do? So I'm driving around now in college, the same car a year later, beat up, and just kind of like, man... What happened? And, and, and although that was a small thing and much, gone through much more, but that was kind of the beginning of me, a little bit of doubting God's goodness. Because I went, wait, 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 wait. Here I am. I love you, God. I'm seeking your face. And people are getting saved, and, and I'm testifying, and I've got the love of God in me. And yet, okay, accidents happen, yeah, but I didn't see any justice and, and start, you know, cursing, say, saying those, uh, those bad prayers against State Farm. They're not on my side right now, or that's nationwide, whatever it is. I'm, like, frustrated, and, and I'm sitting here going, wait, God, I thought if I served you, like, everything was going to be easy and orderly, and, and right, and I, I'm going to get success. But, but I'm driving around in this beat-up truck without justice and losing money, and I had friends. I don't know about you, but we had a lot of rich people in the school that I was in. It was in uh, uh, Apple Valley, California, and the school that I was at, I mean, I had friends that show up with Beamer, Roadster, kind of these nice cars, Lexus, drive in, and kind of punks partying all the time. And I'm like, okay, they're looking like they've got a lot of peace and success. And I am driving a beat up Ford Ranger XLT that no justice. I'm so frustrated. What is going on? It sounds like it's speaking in tongues because it's barely moving. Like it's just, I can't get it to move. Why do I have to go through this, God? Ever felt like that before? Well, then you can relate with the psalmist 3,000 years ago. And what does he do in this book? He takes this to God, his emotions, and he starts to deconstruct his doubt. Watch what he does. As for me, I almost slipped. I almost stumbled. My foothold, I lost my foothold. And then he explains why. Here's what was happening. Why? Why, why did he almost slip? Not because he just had a lot of questions about God, his reality, and the existence of God, and all of the things that come with it. It wasn't just the questions that drove him, although that could have started something. We don't know. But here's what he says. I was envious of what I saw. Really, at the heart of it, wasn't these great questions that we have wonderful answers to even in the scientific community today. 
It wasn't just some other belief and some thought, because here's the deal about doubt. Doubt is not just an intellectual thing. It is an experiential thing as well. It's a relational thing, because you are not just a brain on a stick. You are not just a person with a bunch of intellectual questions. You have experiences to go with your questions. And you have things that have happened, and then, then the questions come in, but it's real easy for us to go, you know what, it's all about the questions, and until I get the questions answered, then I'm not going to be able to move on. And I think Asafia is trying to say, listen, it wasn't just about the questions, it was about what was going on in my heart. And I need to deconstruct why I doubt. And he came to the conclusion, I doubt because really I felt entitled to success, prosperity, and everything going well because I had a pure heart and I love God. And those people don't. They don't deserve it. And it's interesting, he starts to deconstruct this within his heart. And I think we all need to do this. We need to deconstruct our doubt. We need to look at ourselves and say, why am I mad? Why do I think God just owes me something? And if that's the case, what kind of God am I really serving? Am I serving a God that I'm just trying to do things so then he'll bless me? Well, I'm not serving him for him. The object of my faith is now success, not him, not a person. And he starts to deconstruct his faith by questioning his questions, by doubting his doubt, by looking and going, there's more going on in him. And, and, and if you look, he goes through and he says, this is what I saw. The people were prospering. And, and, and the word he uses here is shalom. They, they had peace and things were going really, really well. But for me, I'm struggling. They're increasing in riches and I'm struggling. But the beautiful thing he did is allowed himself to think it out feel it out, and really get to, this is not just a question of faith intellectually, but also a heart thing. Uh, I'll give you an example. When uh, I was at U of H a couple years ago doing God tests, and there was a guy, that, and we, we did a whole Saturday thing with our church and, and did God tests, and it was a really awesome time. And uh, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with God tests, it's about 10 questions uh, front and back. Depending on what they say, you ask them, do you believe in God? If they say yes, there's a set of 10 questions. If they say no, there's another set of 10 questions. And the goal is to kind of get them talking. So you're not just talking at them, but also listening. And you want to try to be able to help people understand their worldview or even help them break down, are you really living what you believe? Because our culture is really bad at this, right? Uh, I'm not going to go off. I'm not going to go off. I'm not going to go off. Okay. I'm talking to this guy, and we're talking about it, and he's, he's an agnostic, and he's just like, you know, I don't, I don't believe in God, I, just don't, I don't know, da, 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 but I'm pretty sure he's like, I'm, you know, 90% atheist, but 10%, so I'm going to consider myself agnostic, and we're going around, and the more I get to know him, we just kind of sit down and start talking, the more I get to know him, the more other things start coming up, and one thing finally comes up, and he says, you know what, and I had this aunt, and she was devout, she loved God, she served him. Went to church, and she, she, just, she was a, the biblical pillar for our, for, our, for our family, and yet she died of cancer. I can't love a God like that. And this is why the anthem of the atheist is, there is no God, and I hate him. Because at the root of it, it's not just an intellectual argument, but it's also, I have this experience tied to it. And so what you have to be able to do is deconstruct emotions and think clearly. What is really going on at the depth of me? What do I believe about this God? And how is that shaping my whole life? Look what he says, verse 7. He goes forward. Their eyes swell out 
through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak. Go down all the way. Verse, verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch the earth. Look what he says. Therefore, his people, whose people? God's people turn back to them. Turn back to who? Turn back to the ungodly. He says this is how God's people get trapped back into a wrong culture, a wrong worldview, or allow doubts, which aren't bad in and of themselves, but allow them to kind of uh, become like termites in their foundation, is they see, oh, success, uh, things are really hard and not working out because of suffering and evil in my life. Ooh, they're doing really good. I'm going to follow that train. And he says, this is why they do it. And we see, oh, that, now that's the right way to go because things are going good for you. Oh, now I'm going to follow this person because things are going good for you. Now I'm going to follow this person because things are going good for you. Not realizing at the heart of it is a faith problem. And that's what we want to get to. Look what he says. And the people, the people of God say to God, how can God know? How can God know their deeds and who they are and they're ungodly and yet bless them and prosper them? He says, is there knowledge in the most high? Does, is he really good? Does he really know everything? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. He's going, what was, the, what was the point? What good is it to be godly? He's struggling through this because it's not working out for him. I think we can all relate in some ways. He says, for all day long I've been stricken. I've been rebuked every morning. Look what he says. This is where he starts making a turn. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if I would have continued down this path of going, maybe you're not good, maybe you don't know anything, maybe I'm going to follow these people that are successful because it's seemingly good right now in the moment, and I want to be in the moment, and I want to have my success and comfort fulfilled right now. Maybe if, if I would have done that and then started speaking about that, here's what he says. It's not just about my faith, but it's about also the people of God and the people behind me, beside me, in front of me. And he says, it's not about me alone. And here's the deal. If you don't learn to deconstruct your doubt and figure out why it is you're doubting and actually use your brain, use your experience in your mind, this is just the beginning phase. If you don't do that, there are people in the wake that can and might follow you and you take them down with you. As Romans says, the book of Romans, Paul says, that people blaspheme God because of you. And he's talking to the church. And he says, it's more than just about me. If I would have just stayed in that place and not deconstructed my doubt, oh my gosh, I would have taken people down with me. And look what he says. And I love this because he turns the corner in the second part of this dig. Look what he says. But when I thought how to understand all these things, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Look what he's saying. He's saying, as long as I just thought about trying to figure out evil and good and how this works together and how can a good God have suffering and bad things happen and all these things, all these questions that aren't bad to think about and you should think through. But he says, as long as I just stayed by myself and did that, I couldn't get out of it and I was weary. Why? Because it's not just an intellectual problem. Because our doubts aren't just intellectual, they're experiential. And he's saying, as long as I just stayed there, I'm not getting any other experiences. Or maybe this, maybe you're in college and 
You have a professor who just has an axe to grind against Christianity, and he's just out ready. And not that everybody's ready to do that or out to do that. God's not dead. It's a hyperbole. Like, it's big time, right? But, but you might have somebody that's just, like, has an axe to grind, has some experiences against Christianity or Christians, and is ready just to destroy the worldview of any Christian in his class. And as long as you listen to that and just allow that doubt and just think about that and then immerse yourself in that community, it's no wonder you're going to fall I talk to people or have, have coffee with somebody and they're really struggling. All these bad things are happening. And I'm not sure about God. And I'm not sure about, you know, following God, all these kind of things. And, and they, they were believers before, but they're struggling. And it's okay to struggle. And that's part of it. And we want to be authentic. But I'll say, are, are you going to church? No, I kind of stopped going to church. Well, you got out of community. You got out of the experience of people that love God and, and are going forward, even in the midst of their questions. And with their questions, taking them to God in the community. And I love this because he says, when I thought to understand this, I was so weary by myself until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What's happening in the sanctuary at this time? This is kind of like going to church. But at this time, there was animal sacrifice happening for the remission of sins. There was uh, praise, worship. There were classes teaching the Torah. There was all of these, these things happening in this community of people going on that are fighting through the challenges and questions and the doubt and going through it, not dismissing it, not fully giving air to it, but going through it with a community. And if you do not do this, you will think yourself weary and quit. You will never get through it because God wants you to get through it and struggle through it. But he has put people beside you and around you to help you, to encourage you, to push you. And ultimately, I would say, to grow you. Because the object of our faith is a person. And as a community, we come together and worship together and see God. I'll tell you, when I was struggling again as a 17-year-old, and it's got good, and these bad things are happening, and I'm struggling, just getting in community and and learning how to worship in the midst of not understanding everything and experiencing the person, as Scott even said, the presence of God, all of those things start getting healed. Around people that are praying for me and helping me, the questions are still there, but now all of a sudden it's like, "But, but this is true. This is reality, and you see his turn with this. Look at this. Mark Batterson, a good pastor, says this. I love what he says. He says, oftentimes, a change of pace and a change of place give you a change of perspective. If you're doubting and you're frustrated and you're not sure, but you stay in the same pace of life and the same place you're in, you're not going to change your perspective on your doubt, on your suffering, on your pain. You're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to deal it a death blow or at least encourage towards forward movement. But immersing yourself in community, immersing yourself around people that can encourage and help you is vital. Look what he says, verse 18. Truly, I love the poetry in this. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. Look what he says. He started off this whole thing, said, I began to slip off this rock. And then he realized, no, 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 the people that don't know you were really in slippery places. And he's comparing the foothold. My foothold almost fell, but now I see their foothold. It will end in destruction, even if right now it doesn't look like it. You could quote Paul in 2 Corinthians who says, we walk not by sight, but by faith. Or by sight is by the seeming appearance of things. 
And you know that even scientifically, the last hundred years, the scientific community has made incredible advances to know that things like this pulpit, this is not, this is actually more not here than it is here. With the space around it and the, the molecules and the things going, there's less matter here than there is anything else actually. And we know this scientifically, but when it comes to spiritual things, it's like, oh, but that looks good. and That looks good. And we forget so quickly that we walk by faith and not by sight. And I think part of the last step to going through your doubts is growing in your faith. Learning how to compare these footholds like he was doing. Like my football, I almost slept. I was having a hard time, but man, for real, they're slipping. And look what he says. How they are destroyed, verse 19, in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, look at this, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you. He's saying, God, when I was upset and mad and not understanding you and just letting you have it, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. He says this. It looks like I'm worse off now, but in the end, I know as I enter with community, as I deconstruct my doubts, I know as I grow in my faith, my foothold is stronger than theirs. And he learns how to do this. And here's the last part. You have to grow in your faith. This doesn't mean you need to just have faith, just believe. That's kind of not a nice statement a lot of times. But growing in your faith faith is an attitude. And being a person that says, you know what, I'm going to, learn how to love God with all of my mind, which means I'm going to learn how to compare these footholds. Let me give you an example of this. There's a, it's not C.S. Lewis, but it's a friend of his, Sheldon Vanaken, in a book, Severe Mercy. Look what he says. It should be up on the screen. I'm going to explain the picture here in a second. He says this, in my old easygoing theism, I had regarded Christianity as a sort of fairy tale, and I had neither accepted nor rejected Jesus since I had never, in fact, encountered him Now I had. The position was not, as I had been comfortably thinking all these months, merely a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. Here's what he's saying so far. He came to this point that it's not a question of will I believe or not believe. Because that's never a question in the culture. Do you understand that? There's not believers and unbelievers. There is in a sense. But there's not belief and unbelief. There's only belief and another belief. So there's not like this, there's this neutral place that we all stand on and we go, yeah, of course. There's this place like this gap in the middle. You're either leaping towards one end or you're leaping toward the other. Look what he says. My God, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble to accept Christ. But what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God But by God, there was no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. It's a British way of talking. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do once I'd seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. What he's trying to say is when when I doubt, I have to leap forward in order to grow. But I, I have to realize at some point as he was getting to know Christ and starting to believe a little bit, maybe he is God and I should stake my life on it. He, he's going, but it's a little bit of a leap because I'm de- depending on eyewitness accounts. I'm depending on a lot of things. So there's a little bit of a leap, even though there's reason involved. But he said, as I was trying to think whether I wanted to take this leap, I realized my old previous life and way of living, there was a belief system that I was believing on it as well. 
And now it wasn't just a, well, is this one right or is this one wrong? But I have to make a choice because it's all beliefs. Am I going to jump either way? And he came to the conclusion, this is a much more reasonable belief because faith and reason are not opposites. Look, at, look up William Lane Craig. You can YouTube some of his videos. He has a website that is, is, is all about faith, and it's called Reasonable Faith. It's reasonable. It's honest. And you see this with Sheldon Von Aachen saying, there's something to this. And here's what you have to do. You have to learn how to think like this. You have to learn how, okay, giving into this doesn't mean I'm not doing anything, but I'm giving into something else. Believing this doesn't mean I'm just kind of being, but I'm believing something else. What am I going to believe? What am I going to step out on? And if you don't learn to challenge yourself and grow yourself in that, in gospel articulation, in understanding who God is and why we should follow him, you're always going to be stuck in your doubts. And this is what community helps build. So my daughter, she's 11 years old. She's probably around here somewhere. And, you know, she comes home and she's like, I'm trying to tell some of my friends at school about Jesus, but they just tell me they don't want to hear about my beliefs. But they'll sit there and tell her, right? Uh, one, of them, one of them says, and I'm not saying names, that's rude. But one of them is like, hey, I don't believe in God, but I believe in reincarnation. So she's just like, okay. My head's spinning. What do I say? And we're at 11 years old having gospel conversations, helping her learn how to compare footholds. Why? Because it's not just important to get people in the kingdom, but it's important for you to understand how life works. Lest you fall into unbelief, into, into, into other beliefs. I think as a Christian, if you're proclaiming to be Christ, you have be in Christ. You have to grow in your faith in this capacity and learn how to do it. You have to be able to ultimately have conversations about like why evil exists. See, in, in, in philosophy circles, and you hear this a lot in mainstream media, evil exists and it's a, it's a reason to not believe in God because how could a good God allow evil to happen and you have this. But in philosophy circles, it's pretty prominent. You don't hear it in mainstream, but there's, but there's also actually an argument for the existence of God because evil exists. Let me give you an example. There's a great uh, philosopher in Notre, in Notre Dame Name's Alvin Plantiga. Look what he says. It's on the screen. The most appalling kinds of human evil and, weak and wickedness. They're a problem for anyone who believes in God. But they are at least as big, if not a bigger problem for people who don't believe in God. Look what he says. These are the only two alternatives. Can there even be such a thing as evil and wickedness if God does not exist? And we are all here only by random chance. I don't see how. An atheistic view of the world has no logical place for genuine moral obligation. The strong eating the weak is completely natural. You have no foundation for saying it's wrong or evil. Therefore, if you think that there's such a thing as good and evil, that's not just an illusion you have, but a very powerful reason to believe in God. It's a philosophical argument for why evil actually proves the existence of God. And if you really think about it, dive into it, it helps you to start getting kind of a rhetoric to be able to talk to people about God, to say God is good to actually have some evil in things in our world because it's proving things out in us and causing us to do things. You see the Me Too movement right now, which is so prevalent and so great, but what a mixed up worldview we have with it. Of course it's horrible what we're doing to women, but also at the same time, then you're scantily dressing and doing the things that you're doing. It doesn't make any sense. Here we are in the midst of two worldviews, op 
opposing and yet a world that's saying, don't do this and don't be like this, but all morality is relative and you can be whatever you want. Do you understand how that doesn't work? You understand that that's a problem with evil because at the heart of evil is a moralistic worldview that can only come if there's a God. Do you understand this? You have to be able to not be super intellectual, but to be able to get through this because it helps you get through your doubts. Why am I going through suffering? It helps you go through it. There's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Annie Dillard, puts it this way. I like this. She says this. She was out. She was writing a book, and she went out on a year to a cabin and just observed nature, and she's in the middle. And this book became a Pulitzer Prize winning book. Look, Look what she says. There's not a person in the world who behaves as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say. There's no right or wrong in nature. Right or wrong is a human concept. We are moral creatures living in an amoral world. Consider the alternative, that this is just a human feeling that's freakishly amiss. It's just our molecules bumping around. What's good for you is good for you, right? There's no morality. He says, all right then, we are the freaks and the world is normal. Nature is normal. She says, so let's all go have lobotomies and restore us to a natural state and we can leave lobotomize and go back to the creek and live on its banks untroubled as any muskrat or reed you first. She says, it doesn't, this moral, this moral problem and suffering, you have to think it through because it becomes logical. And let, let me tell you as I end how I resolve it and think it through personally, just a personal illustration. I told you about when I was 17 and the car and everything. You know, that was minor. As you continue to grow in your faith, there's more doubt that comes. Because faith is it's not the absence of doubts, but actually working through in the presence of it. Sometimes if you don't doubt, you're not given opportunity for faith. And so as life circumstances come and experiences come, I remember me and my wife moved here in 2010. It was like restarted this church, came, and God was moving and doing amazing things. We got pregnant at the same time with our third kid, and we're just like, okay, we got a baby church. We got a baby on the way. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And I remember being so excited at the time, and things were going really well. And then we had our, our baby boy, Jackson, who's six now, and he did not sleep, not hardly, maybe, maybe five nights in one year through the night. Like, I'm telling you, two, three hours, and we could not at a time. We could not. It came to the point where we're at night going, should we even go to bed? Because he's going to be up in an hour. And we were exhausted, and we're trying to run this church and meet with people and counsel people. And we, we honestly, we just started getting really weary, and what is going on? And, okay, we'll get through this. And then we started noticing when he was two years old, he's not acting normal, and things just aren't right, and, and other people are telling us that. So we go, and it takes us a year to get him diagnosed, and he gets diagnosed with um, autism. And for us, we were just like, okay, we're going to navigate this. But a lot of us were going, okay, why do we have to go through this? Why? Like, we're, we're trying to do things for you, God, and we sacrifice our life. We have no money coming here, no savings. What, what are we doing? This is for you, God. And here we are with this very challenging kid, and we're reading about autism, and he's high-functioning, praise the Lord. But anybody, any parents with uh, special needs kids, autism, the, even their, the divorce rate is 80% because of how hard it is. 
And, and so I, I remember having times where people over at our house were trying to get to know people. Our newcomers' dinners were at my house, not in this building. And we had 20 people there, my wife's with Jackson in the back. And we couldn't take him to crowds a lot of time. We couldn't even give him a birthday party because if people were singing happy birthday at the same time, the sensory issues would go off and he would just scream. We couldn't hardly take him out to restaurants because if he dripped even just a drop of water on him, he'd have to take all his clothes off. And so we kind of just got to the point where we're just like, what do we, I don't know what to do. And it was really a challenging time and still is to this day. It's challenging and and fighting through like, why God? I, I don't understand. I don't get it. And yet, I have so much comfort and solace when I deconstruct my feelings and my emotions. When I'm doubting, going, God, why would you allow this? You know where he takes me? Look at my son. Look at Jesus. What did Jesus, did he live a perfect life for you? Did he come here of his own volition and will and everything go great? No, he was rejected, despised, killed, beaten, hurt. Why? For you so you could come to me. And that foundational thought alone changes my very rhetoric of who I believe God is. God's not here just for your prosperity and for everything to go well with you. Why? Because growing hurts. It is hard. Do you remember growing pains growing up? Guys, some of you guys that are tall, I I didn't have much because I'm short. But... It hurts. See, we have this idea. I'm not being fed. I'm not really growing. You don't remember that growing is painful. It hurts. It's not easy. You want easy. There's no growth. There's no growth. What you're asking is not to be fed or something. You're asking for everything to be easy. And God said, I didn't send my son with an easy life. Why? He did that for you. And my resolve I'll go through anything for you because you're the object of my faith, Jesus. Not my comfort, not my bank account, not my success, not a perfect family where everybody can go, look at the pastor, he's got a great family. You know what's my foundation, object of my affection is Jesus. And if that's the case, I'll go through anything. I'll do anything. Cut me, bleed me, shame me. I'm his. That's what it means to be a believer. And that's how you get through the doubt not without community and many of you coming alongside me and my family and praying for us, loving on us, immersing ourselves in people even when it's hard work and ultimately saying, God, my attitude, I want to grow. Man, I want to grow. I love, I love the end of this and I just want to say it. Verse 24, he says this, you guide me, God, with your counsel. Afterwards, you will receive me in glory. You're my goal. You're my purpose. You're my glory. Look what he says. Whom, at the end of the day, who am I? Who do I have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth. He gets to this place of, even if I got all that stuff, it doesn't fulfill me. Nothing can fulfill me. My sexuality, my lifestyle, my banking, it's not going to be fulfilling because I'm always just going to need more or something else. Only you could fulfill me, God. There's nothing I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. He finds the nearness of God even in his suffering. 
He finds that God is really there even when he feels like he's not. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. I know this. I'm not a pastor that's living in a mansion telling you how to be a prosperous life. I'm a pastor that's going, you know what? We struggle through things, but we need Jesus, and it keeps me on my knees. And you need that too. And if you don't have that, you might not have an authentic relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's just superficial. And it's a mask, and it's on the outside, and God is going, are you mine? Will you be mine? Will you trust me in the good, the bad? And the success, because he can and will bring success as well. But will you give him glory when he doesn't? Will you struggle through those doubts and dig? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you this morning. God, to see this 3,000-year-old text come to life in our midst. Lord, help us in our doubts. Listen, listen to my voice as your head is bowed. If you're in here and you're going, you know what? I have a lot of intellectual doubts. That is valid. But let me tell you, there are brilliant people, even in this room, that can help you with those doubts and, and give you some answers. Maybe you're going, I have experiential doubts. Like things are, things are just not working out. I'm really struggling. There are people in this room that can pray and help you. But let me tell you this. At the end of the day, There is a decision between you and God. Are you going to love him? Are you going to serve him? Are you going to trust that he is good? Even if your sight might not see it or your feelings might not feel it. Because let me tell you, he is. And sometimes I don't truly even notice, care, or feel the power of his goodness without going through the challenges. I want to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to have a time. We're just going to end just a few minutes here of worship and have a time to pray. If you want prayer and you're going, you know, I've got some doubts. We want to to pray for you. If you're saying, man, I want to know Jesus. I want a relationship with Jesus. We want to pray for you. We want to be here for you. Maybe you're just going, you know what, I'm just just struggling. And come, come to the sanctuary. As Asaf said, and allow the Lord to do some ministry to your heart. Maybe you're there and we're just going to worship in the presence of God is my prayer that he just overwhelms you with his grace and his love in this time. Let's worship together.